I made a choice, and this is it. Family, work, music. Sometimes I feel embarrassed that I so obviously have made this choice. There's great shame attached to nailing your colours to a mast. In the 21st century, the way to be is aloof and have a clear and apparent indifferent attitude, even to something you love doing. It's so much easier to act like you don't care. People are embarrassed to be seen to fail. I grew tired of that attitude a few years ago. It feels so damaging and negative. Come out and be proud of what you are and what you're doing and who you want to be. Why not? Why act like you don't care when you do? Why let people think you're drifting through this instead of fighting through? You never know. It may just be the best thing you do. Hello and welcome to episode 17 of Songs from a Padded Envelope. My name is Steve and I'm here with co-host Ben. Hello, Ben. Hi there, Steve. You have just heard today's guest, Joe Thompson, reading an extract from his excellent book, which is part of the Sleeve Notes series published by Pomona Books. And it was after you read Joe's book, Ben, that you suggested we reach out to Joe about him coming on the show. I did indeed, mate. I mean, I think um, we are both keen readers of a music biog or music related book. And this one really hit home to me. It kind of echoed almost to the letter I felt my own sort of personal experiences around being a musician and and lots of the conversations that you and I have had over the years and of course lots of the points that we've touched on in the conversations with people that we've had as part of this podcast yeah it was it was an idea that we sort of were kicking around wasn't it to to base some episodes around music biogs um and then this book came along and it's a it's a it's an amazing read but it's his story is not one that's sort of based around releases or success but around lifestyle which is something that it struck a chord with both of us it did i mean we've you know we've repeatedly come back to this idea around um diy and uh doing you know getting in amongst it and and taking control of um uh, I was going to say career for a minute, which will come on to later. <laughs> but um, yeah. you know, coming uh, sort of the D- the DIY journey through being a musician, and it seemed always pretty clear that um, this has underpinned Joe's whole journey almost without question or without hesitation from the very beginning. He didn't even think about it; just that was that was immediately where it flowed from. Yeah, a, a, another aspect of this conversation that I really enjoyed was Joe's lifelong friendship with Bob Davis. That's something very special to hear about, isn't it? It's fantastic, yeah. Um, especially when you think about the own your own sort of personal connections with people that you made. I mean, for you and me, or for um, you know, it's uh, and for the fact that it started at such a very young age and it's taken twists and turns, and there they are still in amongst it, having uh, having developed a fantastic relationship and having great fun together, aren't they? Mm, yeah yeah there's so much going on in joe's story that i i think it takes a couple of listens to fully appreciate the commitments that he's made in his life and uh, we're recording this at a time when our current government is seemingly advocating creative people to retrain (laughs) i think uh that what's presented in joe's story could be it couldn't be more timely really exactly yeah and when you when you come to the end of the book and there's a real nice there's a, a list of all the people that are um, have been in hey colossus which is joe's current band that the book is kind of centered around um and throughout the story there's you know 
details the kind of comings and goings of those people as people join the band or leave the band to go and do something else or come back to it. And there's no, there's no kind of hint of animosity or any difficulties and stuff. It just kind mm. of, the band has slowly evolved and, um, and those people, even the people that are left, Joe's still in contact with or supporting them with musical projects that they're making, um, different things that they're doing now. It's just kind of, um, it's, uh, his generosity, um, in life and as a musician is, um, seems to, there's no end to it really, is there? It's almost like a kind of parallel universe in some ways. If you think you know what it is to be in a band, if you think you know what it is to commit yourself to, uh, writing songs with people and touring and you know, and you have an idea of what that all entails, I think check that at the door and have a listen to the way that it can be done differently in a way that absolutely embraces all of that stuff that you just described, because that's that's Joe's story and, and that of the people that are uh, in that network, that ever-growing supportive network of bands and performers um, that have enriched his story that, that we got to hear a bit about in this interview it is yeah and just going back to i think you know touching on the book again it's uh for me this is a must read you know like if you've mm. got a if you've got a passing interest in music or being a musician or um you know then this is one for you to 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 really cherish go and go and grab yourself a copy sit down you will not be disappointed in any shape or form and it may it may have a profound effect on you i certainly feel like even though lots of what joe said as was you mentioned before feels very kind of there's lots of commonality to our own experience i still came away from it thinking yeah i could there's there's more to be done there's a different way to approach things even even with the kind of knowledge that we have already yeah and can i be in your band joe exactly yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> just just going back to the the career thing the career moment that i almost stumbled into earlier there is a, a moment in the conversation where i kind of i mentioned the word career and almost as as the word left my mouth i kind of instantly regretted it and it kind of it certainly was a bit of a, a stop and sit up and think and rethink moment and i think i'm i'm going to try to even though i've failed miserably tonight i'm going to try and expunge the word career from from uh, future conversations that we have all right i'll hold you to that <laughs> uh, thanks to joe for coming on to the show and recording uh, an excerpt from his book for us uh, thanks too to the good people at pomona for their support with this episode please do check out the links in the show notes because you'll find some fine music and words to enjoy Let's go over to our interview with Joe Thompson on episode 17 of Songs from a Padded Envelope. Uh, my name's Joe. Uh, the song at the end is called Direct, and it's by a band I did from the mid-90s to the early to mid-first decade of the 2000s, whatever that's called, the 10s. Um, and it was a band I did with my brother, Simon, and Bob, Bob and I formed um, Hey Colossus out of the ashes of that band. And um, about me, I'm a postman with two kids and a dog and a wife. And that's about the size of it. Okay. Well, you mentioned your bandmate, Bob, uh, uh, in that introduction. And, and you um, have been friends since you were two and formed your first band when you were 12. Can you tell us a little bit about that very first band with Bob? 
Uh, um, yes, I played the keyboards. Um, Lee Natkins played bass. Um, he was two things about Lee Natkins was one, he was allowed to grow his hair really, really long at a very young age. And that's because um, his his family knew that he was going to go bald really young because it was completely in their family. And the other thing about Lee Natkins was he was the only person I knew that was allowed to have page three models stuck to his walls of his bedroom at a really young age. <laughs> it, it felt in, like, yeah, it felt so wrong. It was kind of exciting, but it just felt so wrong going around his house. Um, and Bob played guitar. So there was, we were a three-piece without a uh, drummer. And we did cover versions of Dire Straits and Status Quo songs. Yeah. We never made it out of the garage, but we were 12, you know, it was early days. Um, where, where's Lee these days then, Joe? I have no idea about Lee Nutkins. Um, uh, I don't know. Like, he used to, he, I don't know. Like, we were, we went to school together. And then we went to, like, our last school together, the one we you leave after your um, GCSEs. And, um he called for me every single day at school and then on the very last day he called for me and then we never spoke the day like never spoke after that he called for me every single day i don't know i don't know why he used to, i don't know maybe he just came around as he just liked the um i don't know maybe he just liked the walls without the page three <laughs> models i don't know what it was but yeah maybe just anyhow that was lee nutkins it's a, it's a pretty young age to be coming into your first band. So, what what brings you to that point? How do you get how do you get to that point, Joe? I don't know. We always just love music. I don't know. Um, Bob was. Um, I've still got. I've still got um, like TDK cassettes that Bob made me when we were like ten and eleven, and it's got his handwriting on it and everything. And um, on the one side is making movies by Dire Straits. And on the other side is um, High Voltage by ACDC. And it's got his writing on it. And I, I don't think I'll ever get rid of it. it just, and, you know, and that's from a very young age. His mum was a really big rock music fan. ACDC and all that. I don't know. So they had loads of records around their house. And really, around mine, we had about 40 records. And it was like the best of Eagles and Fleetwood Mac and things. But around his house, they had uh, what I always thought was a very good record collection. I have some of those. I have some of those tapes too from a from a, a school friend, with, and he had, he had the most immaculate handwriting, and I feel the same about them. I will never. He, he did me a punk compilation, my buddy Stuart, and I I will yeah I, I treasure those cassettes still. There's something quite touching about them, isn't there? I I made um when um um Elisa and I first got together, Elisa, my wife now, and has been for twenty plus years, um. I made her like mixed cassettes, mixed tapes, like you used, you know, the classic mixtape. And then our car got stolen and all the tapes went missing. And um, like we, we like bought one of those cars where you pay weekly for like five years and you sign into it. And that car was stolen after a year. So we were still paying for it for about three or four years later. But the one thing that really upset the least of the most was the cassettes going missing. Don't know. There's something personal about them. Yeah, yeah, very, yeah. Have you ever have you ever seen the the uh, Thurston Moore mixtape book? It's a really oh, really lovely. Oh no, thing. I haven't. No, no. Oh, it's definitely worth getting a copy of that, isn't it, Steve? Yeah, it's lovely. Yeah, really nice. Yeah, it's the handwriting yeah. that does it half the time, isn't it? And the little sort of a little little drawings and the personal touches. I don't know. I I don't like. I so whenever I talk about stuff like this, I realise that I sound a zillion years old. <laughs> you, you know, like because it's not like a YouTube playlist or something, is it? It's it's of an era. 
for sure. Although cassettes are back, right? So apparently so. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> have you released Have you released music on cassette recently? Uh, um, well, the label I started just half a year ago put out two albums on cassette just last Friday, and um, only like fifty of each, but they they both sold out. Like, you know, yeah, yeah. It's the cassette, it's the cassette era because they're cheap. Because like. But like 160 quid for 50 of them, like nice sleeves and everything. It's a good way of doing it. Yeah, it's good, eh? Yeah, yeah. People still like buying physical product, don't they? So like even with that, you can charge a fiver for it. They get the download. They get the... It's, it's nice. So where does your journey go after after the band with Lee Nutkins then? Where do you go from there? <laughs> did you write his name down? Like, how did you remember that? That was, that was good. Yeah. <laughs> I, actually, I actually know lee really well yeah how's his hair he's, <laughs> oh, bald, he's, isn't he? he's, he's completely bald yeah. yeah of course he is yeah yeah what <laughs> was that band called the lee nutkins trio yeah <laughs> I, I, I doubt we even had a name i can't remember the the first band we did really where we actually recorded a demo tape was called the state we're in it was named after the um first dogs to more album um, who were a uh, sort of a, I don't know if you know that band, sl- sort of a sleazy, glammy band, you know. Um, so, yeah, we were called The State We're In, and it was me and Bob and uh, Stuart Phillips, who I worked at Perfect Pizza with. And, um, yeah, and uh, George Horn on vocals, of course. You, you knew that. Um, yeah. <laughs> and we did one one cassette demo, and it was called Flub, Botch and Bungle, and uh, I had three songs on it. And it was absolutely, uh, of course, it's atrocious, but I've still got it. Um, yeah, so that was next. But that was, we were like 15 or 16 by this point. And very soon we started being a little bit better. So, yeah. Uh, you might have to send us a, a track from that, I think, Joe. Uh, I, might, I might not have to. <laughs> <laughs> what, was the, what, was the experience, what was the experience like? Where did you go and record the demo with, with that band? Oh, that band. Oh, no. Um, I got hold of a four track and we did it ourselves. Um, Stuart had a um, Stuart lived in the country and he had a big shed. So we used to record in his shed and his dad would. Um, they would it would the shed was full of um, uh, bird corpses hanging upside down. I think I guess they taste better once they've been hung upside down for a bit. And like maybe the blood goes to a different. I don't know how it works. I don't know the logistics of dead birds, but <laughs> that the you know there was a lot of that around. It was in the countryside. It's just um, pheasants and, and or or whatever yeah, no chickens. Idea. Yeah, they when like... you said that, I was imagining like sparrows. Yeah, no, they're like some hideous <laughs> bird murderer. Yeah, no, no, uh, yeah, no, more small, but I, yeah, that. No, yeah, they were like I don't know, big birds, not like swans. <laughs> <laughs> Somewhere in between a swan and a sparrow, but darker. Um, yeah, I mean that's gonna it's gonna seep into your into your songwriting, surely. <laughs> <you're surrounded> by... <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. So oh, uh, but, but it's it's like you know it's all good fun, isn't it? I distinctly remember one of the first things we did. Um, we were, co- we were covering like a deep purple song um, and uh, there was a moment this is about two or three years into playing with other people in bands and there was a moment where we all played in time 
Like, and I distinctly remember us all looking at each other for that half a second, thinking, holy crap, we're all in time. And it, it felt like, yeah, that felt like the biggest stepping stone. Like, it took about two years, but to actually all play in time with each other, man, alive. And then about 10 years yeah. later, we bought Tuna, so we're in tune with each other. Then as well. <laughs> That's uh, it's, it's so true, that, that moment when, when it does all lock together and you and you're conscious of that for the first time or you suddenly realize you maybe you're not conscious when it happens but then suddenly you know there's a there's a moment of realization about that stuff is is so special yeah yeah absolutely we we, we all, i remember we all looked at each other it, like with absolute disbelief and it was just a few seconds and then it, and then it all just drip, drifted away again but it, it's it's like a getting a little high and thinking okay we need to reach that high again and then as you keep doing music through the years, you just want to always, you're always reaching for the next high. And I think about like enormous bands, like I think about U2 a lot, um, uh, one of my least favorite bands. I think about that band a lot and I wonder what their next high is. You know, like once you've played like to like 100 or 200,000 people and you've sold millions and millions of records, what is your next high? Like, is, is it like playing on another planet? Like, how does it work? You can't just keep, you just have to keep going higher. I don't know. So my my advice is to um, progress really, really slowly. Like, <laughs> tiny, <laughs> tiny steps. <laughs> well, yeah, you, I mean, you mentioned in your, in your, um, in your book about uh, one of the, the motivations was, um, I wrote it down here. Wait, I'm going to, I'm going to quote it back to you at uh, the occasional victories and that seems to be that sort of tie in with what you're saying yeah could you expand on that idea a little bit a little bit about you know those occasional victories and what they might be um well often it's um i don't know it, it's traveling quite far and people turning up to see you like and it doesn't even need to be in great numbers it can just, you know, if you go somewhere and there's 20 people there or, you know, if you've traveled a long way and you're into another country and there's people there or, I don't know, radio play, you know, it's, 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 it's just that it's the little things that come when you've not, I don't know, when you're not a big band with vast sums of cash behind you. I, I, I don't know. It feels like um, I'm trying to put it into words. But it, they are, yeah. It's just those little highs you just keep looking for, and it, it's um, it, it's just meeting nice people, maybe, or it's it's um, it's you know, recording a record and seeing its release, release even on a small level, be it a cassette or whatever. No, it's you know, and and it's in amongst your normal life where you've got a kid and you've got two kids, and then you've got a job and you've lost a job and you've got and like life is all just around it. I don't know, it's just nice when it occasionally falls into place. There's a there's a lot in your in your book, Joe. There's so many great moments where you talk about the um the moments where you make connections with people where you have an impact on people's lives or where you make a friendship, whether that's on tour or a friendship with other musicians and stuff, that seems to be that is so significant, isn't it? Uh yeah. Yeah. I absolutely love it. I think we all do otherwise we wouldn't do it um well, we were speaking about reese earlier was that before we started recording it was yeah, yeah. yeah. it might have been okay yeah reese the drummer but like 
it's all you know he he's done loads of bands we've all been doing loads of bands and i think the reason we're still doing it is for these moments you know because you know none of us are particularly young um I, it, yeah it's the moments isn't it i don't know love it <laughs> what can i say is it yeah do you think it it, it it uh there's a direct line back to that moment when you were all playing together in time it's kind of that's the kind of the the, the ground zero for that yeah you know you, it, that, i yeah i don't I, uh, I i i remember that moment for a very good reason and it is for that it's for that sort of it, it's the eureka moment you know where you just think holy crap it's possible and and then you can you, know, you just, it's like a progress from there where you just constantly trying to reach that you, you know I, I don't know and it's just I don't, I don't really know how to put it into words because it's just something that we all just do but um I just love it I just love meeting people I love being involved in it you know I love the organization side of it yeah uh, you know, I love it all so the, the track that you've given us um, for the end is from from the band Stanton, Joe. Can you tell us a bit about how Stanton came together? Uh, yeah, uh, we started early to early to mid nineties, and um, I uh, failed my GCSEs um, heroically, and then um, had to retake them at college, and then ended up going to West Hearts College, which is in Watford. And uh, met up with a fellow called Simon. Simon is from Essex, but he's Canadian. So when you hear the voice, it's a Canadian voice, but he's from Essex, so it's always a bit confusing. Um, and he had boxes and boxes and boxes of uh, four-track tapes that he'd recorded. Um, he was uh, kind of obsessed with Lou Barlow and uh, uh, half Japanese, those sort of characters. Um, and... Um, we totally bonded at uh, college over that. And so between him, me and Bob, uh, we formed a band and that was it really. And, and initially we were just recording in my bedroom and just recording, um, again, just four track stuff messing around. We had six drummers. Um, all of the names began with S, um, apart from the sixth one, my brother, because we'd so fed up of drummers just joining and leaving that I made my younger brother learn the drums and he was an enthusiastic person. Um, he was one of those guys that he is one of those guys that picks up stuff really quickly. So he, he got good at um, windsurfing quite quickly. I remember. And he now does, um, what are those things where you do running and swimming and cycling? Uh, Ironmans. Ironman. So he does those. He lives in Australia now, which is why we split up when he moved to Australia. Um, so yeah, then, so really the band properly started when my brother joined. Um, and at that point, yeah, we were, we started our own label, released a seven inch, did quite well with it. A few sort of radio plays, John Peel, for instance, we did a session for him in the end, which was nice. And uh, yeah, that's the song that you're going to play at the end uh, was one of the seven inch singles. Um, and none of it's online because we were kind of pre mass internet. Um, so the song that you're going to play, actually, you can hear the um, uh, the needle in the groove because it's a uh, needle drop. I, actually, I didn't do it. I think Bob sent it to me. Um, yeah, he did it. So there we are. It's that. It's a lovely thing as well. Mm. The sound of the needle, right? Yeah, indeed. Oh, yeah. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. Uh, well, as you mentioned, uh, the John Peel session kind of feels like we need to, 
to ask about that because his, uh, his his name has come up in a few times uh, in in this podcast. So how, how how did that come about, and how and how was the the session for you, for you? Um, well, uh, it came about because we on the label we did we released uh, a compilation called the Two Minute Men, and it was a double seven inch, and it had um, sixteen bands on it, all doing songs two minutes or less. So it was bands like Joey Fat, um, I'm Being Good, Billy Mahoney, Reynolds, Hiramika Hi-Fi, those sort of bands, if, you, if you've heard of any of those. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah uh, so the first compilation came out, and that was called The Two Minute Men, and it was a double seven-inch, and uh, John Peel played every song off it, like he went mental for it. Um, I think because the songs were so brief, he could squeeze them in here and there, and I don't know, it really, really worked. And so he did a night, a live at Maidervale night called the 10 Minute Men, where he had five bands off the first compilation. And we all went in one night. So all five bands went in one night and uh, played for 10 minutes live on his show. Um, uh, yeah, it was us, Reynolds, Cove, uh, Hiramika Hi-Fi and I think Billy Mahoney. So it's those five bands. And uh, yeah, it was... Um, yeah, it's going to be a top five moment musically of all of our lives, no doubt. Um, well, I, I, I distinctly so. remember, uh, and this is kind of this is kind of disgusting, but it, it sums it up. Is virtually everyone was in the toilet at the same time beforehand, and um, I think most of us wanted to leave and run away. We were all so nervous, like like you get red light fever when you're just recording in a studio. But this was just a different level of uh, brown trouser. Um, uh, but uh, I don't know. Absolutely, remember we saw Paul Weller wandering in the corridors. Yeah, he had um, very snazzy hair. So yeah, <laughs> we did that, and then we released another compilation called Two Minute Men Two, and he did it again. He played all the songs off it, and he picked another five bands from that compilation as well. And they were they were peak moments in that label's life. Really, it was really really excellent. What what an amazing concept, and what an incredible experience. I mean, what was it like for you? Uh, going to Maida Vale, being being in that premises and meeting and meeting John Peel. Ah, it was. I think all of us would say it was completely unreal. That like, yeah, and he, you know, he came in and he walked through the room with like a carrier bag with records in and a bottle of red wine, and um, he said that uh, whoever got closest to ten minutes, the ten, you know, um, would win his trainers that he was wearing. Um, so uh, Reynolds, um. Do you know Reynolds, the band? Maybe they're um, on Gringo. Um, Chris from Reynolds is now in, in Colossus. Um, they timed their set like with a with an actual clock and finished spot on ten minutes. <laughs> oh wow! They got John Peel's train. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but no, it was it was it was absolutely brilliant. Of course, it was. Yeah. And just just dialing back a little bit, what was it that? Um compelled you to start the label what made you start it was johnson family wasn't it that's right yeah um i i don't even think we tried anyone out to get anyone else to release it we'd rec we recorded four songs um and we just put it out we, we pressed up 545 copies of it i think we wanted 500 but they classic overpressed by quite a lot and charge you for it it's like a genius business move from their part. So we ended up with 545. And I, yeah, I don't remember even thinking about getting someone else to 
um, get involved. So we we had these records and we hand stamped them and everything. Uh, uh, in um, we lived in Wood Green at the time in a flat in Wood Green. We hand stamped them all, and um, we got kind of lucky. A few radio plays, Rough Trade took a bunch, and then they asked for more and more and more. Um, and then a label did ask if if we wanted to record music for them. Um, so we thought that sounds like fun. So we went into a studio that they paid for and we recorded some terrible, terrible sounding music that they hated and we didn't like. So they didn't get involved with us anymore after that. So we just carried on the label and uh, really like kind of pushed it on a bit after that. Record, um, released albums by Charlotte Field, uh, Cove, a few others. The Charlotte Field album, I think, is a um, complete classic. Um, I would say that. So yeah, we just carried it on after that, released our own records, and then then carried it on till around two thousand and five or two thousand and six, and sort of stopped it then. I mean, the, the, what was the experience like of working with other bands? Because you, you you talk about a, 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 a sort of disastrous experience with a with another with a larger label and going into a studio for them and stuff. Did that change your approach to working with bands who? Did they come to you, or did you seek seek those bands out? How did it work um, for you? Um, I think. I'm pretty sure all the bands we released music by, we were friends with through playing in bands, um, which is possibly the best way. Um, I, 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 it's a classic, uh, it's not what you know, it's who you know sort of thing. So you end up, you do. it's good to work with people you know. So I say to my um, Stan, my uh, oldest son, he started playing in bands and um, the apple not falling far from the tree, of course. Um, he, that I always say to him that you you need to go to gigs. You need to be a part of what's going on to become friends with people and, and hang out with people and get friends with, you know, like build bonds throughout. And it really, it's like building the foundation that when you eventually go and record something, then maybe you'll know someone who can help you. And it's, it's about getting to know people. And that's what this was. It was just, we were, it was just all friends really couple of couple of bands that might we might not have known very well for the two minute men compilations but if if we didn't know them they were normally friends of friends um and i think that's probably the best way and that's probably still how we do things now even when we go and do gigs abroad or whatever we always try and play for people that we've met before or know or have played for before um yeah keep it keep it in the family isn't it yeah, I mean, in you know, throughout your journey with um, with well, sounds like with Stanton, but also with Hey Colossus, you've had support and help from a whole raft of kind of small labels that you've forged links with. And in the book, you give uh, you give a lot of space to the voices for the people that that helped you along the way. Can you tell us a bit about their importance in in Hey Colossus's story and your own kind of musical story? I, I, my, I, I got I have a rule that's just follow the enthusiasm. So if someone comes to you and they haven't, they've never released a record, but they want to release a record, then go for it because they're being enthusiastic. Like if you're chasing someone to release your music, they don't want to do it. You know, if you send an email and you don't get a reply, it it means something. <laughs> it means something. But if someone comes to you and they, even if they've never done it before, like go for it because enthusiasm wins out every time. Like the, we did a split seven inch with Lords around 2003, 2004, right at the beginning. And um, it was a friend, Manjeev, released it, and he just pressed a couple of hundred or 300, like, seven inches. 
And I don't think he'd released a record before, but he was so enthusiastic about doing it that you you run with it. Like, follow the enthusiasm. Like with everything, <laughs> especially music. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I love I, I love that idea because that, that's it's such a positive foundation to build on. Yeah. If, if, if they're keen and you're... It, 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 if it goes wrong, at least you've sort of you've died on your own sword, you know. Like, don't 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 be chasing people for it. It, it, it never ends well when you chase people. Well, so, but so conversely to that, it, there's a there's a mention in your book of a of a, a, a an encounter with or or lack thereof with EMI after uh, that um, <laughs> yeah. the, they got in touch with you and sent you an email. Uh, but you completely ignored it, and I was quite interested by that because, um, for the the sort of theme of the podcast, for a lot of the interviews that we've had with people have been mm-hmm. folks who were probably getting extremely excited about an an email from EMI. Can you explain a little bit about what happened and your decision making around that contact with the with the label? Yeah, do you think it's flawed? Do you think it's a flawed thing to? Uh, well, I think what happened was we just we'd only played a few gigs. Because at the beginning of Colossus, it was, it was, it was Bob and I, but it was a few people from other bands. So, sort of from the beginning, um, a couple of it's one of those where you'd start a band, and because you'd come from other bands, you had like one leg up already. Do you know what I mean? You weren't like starting from complete scratch. You had a few connections and whatever. So our first gig, we got a really good review on that Drowned in Sound website. And um, yeah, off the back of that, we got an email or two from people like that. But you, you just, I think we probably realized that it was just someone fishing, like just, they probably, I guess they just employ hundreds of people to do that, chase up every new band, especially, you know, this country is very keen on very new things, um, getting excited about very new things. Um, and that's all it was. That's the only time it ever happened. EMI aren't still knocking, <laughs> you, you know. <laughs> so. Well, I don't. I think don't think it's flawed. To answer it's... your question, I don't think it is a, a flawed decision at all. I think I think it's entirely right. <laughs> I, to be honest, I don't think EMI are going anymore. So I, I don't think so. So, so you know, you just outlive everyone. That's the way to do it. Well, it's interesting because one of the one of the things sort of following on from that I was thinking. I mean, lots of the stuff you've talked about is um, so far touches on this whole kind of you know DIY ethos and how it seems to have underpinned your whole kind of musical journey, and that that kind of has run concurrently with sort of the demise of major labels to a certain extent, isn't it? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I think that um, the music industry has. Um has kind of eaten itself alive by not keeping up with what's going on. Um, I kind of, if you compare it with the film industry, it seems that the film industry has embraced, say, Netflix um, and cinemas have become quite attractive places again. So people are quite happy to pay money to go to the cinema. People are quite happy to pay money to be like um, with Netflix and things. And it felt like the music industry is, a few years behind that so I, I think it's the, the i think they're struggling the big companies have really struggled because they've just not kept up with what's gone on like like when they were selling cds for 15 quid you know and vinyl 
they were selling vinyl for nine ninety nine or whatever, and CDs for fourteen ninety nine. Even though CDs only cost about three p to make, and vinyl was costing four or five quid to make, yet they knew that more people were buying CDs, so they just kept the price high. They just ate themselves alive. I mean, of course, they're still going, and you know, people do good things, and it's it's a whole different world, isn't it? They're playing a different sport, but it's funny to watch them. It just feels like they're constantly just head just above water, splashing like you know. Drowning, not waving, for the moment. Yeah, is that in- encouraging your sort of DIY, the, the DIY spirit, and um, the idea of bands taking complete control of their own destiny, if you like? Well, I th- yeah, I think that, that all the um, all the tools are there now for bands to do it themselves, even more now than before. Like you know, things like Bandcamp are kind of they're made for it, aren't they? It's, they're so good. You know, you can you can a, a more like. A, a younger, more internet savvy person can nail it if they want. At the minute, you know, I'm, you know, we're at, you know, we're, I don't know, we know the tools, but we can't use them in the way a young person can. I know that, like they, you know, they can really do good things on their own, and I would actively encourage it. With 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 the release of your the latest Take a Losses record, you've taken the decision to put this out on your own label, Joe. Yeah, uh, well, that it, it it sort of came about accidentally, really. I sort of um, early on in this year, I I, I got furloughed. My um, Elisa had a uh, liver transplant, so um, I couldn't wasn't really allowed out. Um, uh, work wouldn't have me, so I had to stay at home. But I was furloughed, so you know I got money. But consequently, we weren't going out or doing anything. We, you know, we would we were uh, we were going to the supermarket once every two weeks you start doing that you start not spending money in a very big way so i thought i'm just going to start a record label again so i wasn't intending on doing the colossus album um i wanted to release the rains album it was my uh only goal really because it's a band i really like it was their fifth album the label that were going to release it monotreme sort of um uh for whatever reason fell apart so um I was like, I'll do it. We'll just press 100. You've got it digitally already, so it's fine. We'll just do 100 for the sake of it. Make it really nice. We did that. And yeah, and I don't know. And then I thought, damn it, let's do the Colossus one. So that the Colossus one is the seventh release on the label this year. And that's out next month, November. So yeah, I don't know. It was just, let's just do it. Let's just give it a go again. That's incredibly industrious for in such a short amount of time for that for that number of releases. Yeah, we did. Um, so it's... Um, Rains was the first. Uh, then um, we did Sweet Williams album, um, which is Tom from Charlottefield. So Charlottefield was a band we did on Johnson Family way back. And Tom's still doing great stuff. I love Sweet Williams. So did his album. Then um, re uh, put out a couple of albums that were originally on cassette. So we did the Bass Clef album, which is kind of a hauntology rave album. That I absolutely loved. Came out 2011 on cassette, but I really wanted it on record and it didn't exist. Um, that's not available online digitally because uh, um, there's too many uh, too many bad samples on there that if got heard would be would be a bad vibe. But that's really excellent. And then did the Acid Liner album, which is Reese Reese's um, sort of techno-y thing. Um, and I love that album. That was a cassette as well. And then did release a couple of cassettes last Friday. Um, yeah, just keep. I don't know. Let's just do it. If you're going to do it, dive in, eh? 
I'm doing I'm doing the same thing that I was do, I'm do, that I was doing when I was reading your book. It was just pen in hand, writing down all the names of bands that you you're reeling off. Because, and I felt I found myself doing that with the book. I came out with about fifty things I needed to go away and listen to. <laughs> I would I, I I think that the the one band the one thing that no one really talks about because everyone's like oh I've just discovered Lungfish because of your book whatever I'm like well everyone should have known Lungfish for the last ten you know ten years come on. So if you haven't checked out Lungfish, definitely go and check out Lungfish. But I really love the DJ Rashad album, Double Cup. I absolutely love that record. I don't know. Like a Chicago footwork album. Um, yeah, I think it's emotional and brilliant. So that's the one I'd go for. Okay. All right. <laughs> with the, uh, with the de- sort of developing the label from scratch again, that network that you talked about before, how much did you draw on that to sort of, get a bit of a groundswell for what you were what you were putting out and to to get to get the label running did you did you reach out to people that you were connected to previously well in the people that have released music by again they're all people i know friends through certainly through colossus um yeah but yeah every every everything i've released so far is somehow connected to the band i got got uh got distribution through cargo so cargo of shipping it through shipping the records through Europe. Um, and then with the Colossus album, one of the things I've noticed um, is that postage is really, really expensive from here to America and back again. I've not bought a record from America for three or four years now. And I used to buy a lot of records from America, but I haven't bought for years because the post is so, so expensive. So um, we found a label to release it in America. So people don't have to pay postage from us. Uh, um, so Learning Curve, who are based in Minneapolis, are releasing the Colossus album in America at the same time as we're doing it over here. So. And how did that connection come about with Learning Curve then, Joe? Um, I, I have a feeling that initially it came about because of um, Henry from Chunklet. Um, Chunklet was a magazine that ran. Um, he's, um, I think he lived in Athens. He's a big fan of bands like Part Chimp. He put out a Part Chimp Torch split 12-inch. Um, so he runs a label called Chunklet, and he also had a magazine called Chunklet. And I have a feeling, for whatever reason, he might have liked us as well. So he put a word in with Rainer, who runs Learning Curve. But this was a good few years ago. So we had a song on a Learning Curve compilation three or four years ago. Um, but then Learning Curve also released the first Henry Blacker album in America, which was another band that I do with... Tim and Rue, Tim and Rue are the two people in Reigns. It's all very connected. But this is what I'm talking about. It's uh, keep it in the family. Can you explain a little bit more about the, the Henry, Henry Blacker stuff? What was the motivation behind splitting off and doing that? Um, we were all Somerset-based. Um, I, uh, I moved to Somerset around 12 or 13 years ago from London. Uh, Tim and Rue also moved from London to here. They grew up in Somerset, but they moved back here. And Rue is Tim's brother, and he wanted to learn the drums. So we just got together and had a sort of a a jam uh, in a local rehearsal room and just and then from then went weekly and then ended up we've released three albums. In fact, we've half recorded a fourth, which would have been finished now if it wasn't for this year's um, uh, issues. Um, but yeah, so that's just a, a three piece noisy rock band we do. It's um, good fun. It's local. I rehearse eight minutes from my house as opposed to that rehearses three hours from my house. 
So it's quite enjoyable on that front. Um, just going back a little bit, and so in your in your book, um, you give a really beautiful description about the importance of vinyl and the physical object to you and to to the other folks in Hey Colossus. Mm. Can you tell us a bit more about the nature of being an obsessive music collector? Yeah. See, um, we had a we had a plumber in the other day. He was a. Uh, um, we're trying to put a uh, sink in the garage. That's not important. But we had this guy in and he looked, I got a lot of records in the living room and he looked at more and he's like, Oh, have you got any rare ones? Have you got any, you know, how people are, have you got any that are worth loads? And I was saying to him that I don't actually buy records that I don't, I don't like pay big money for records. I, I don't, I'm not looking for like a Beatles record for 300 quid or I don't want to pay a thousand pounds for a record. I just buy new releases and whatnot because I like uh, sort of almost, it's got to the point where I feel like I'm diarising my music listening by having it on a shelf and it's a reminder. So back in the days when, um, you know, you'd have a load of friends round and you'd drink a load or whatever, you could pull out a Motley Crue record and go, oh, I remember this, I was 12, I bought a Motley Crue album. And then you have a great time with a Motley Crue album because it's on your shelf and it's reminding you. And it's basically a, a, a shelf of reminders of your whole life. I feel like I'm sort of diarising my musical life by owning records. Um, so that's why I'm a firm believer in the physical product still. Um, I don't really, I, I'm, personally, I'm not a big fan of buying digital music. So I don't really do it. I haven't got the facilities to play it. Even at home, I wouldn't listen to a CD. I'd still listen to a record, even though CDs are physical. I'm not against them. It's just, I'm just in that, so in the habit of playing a record in the house. Um yeah, I'm just an enormous fan of physical music. Yeah, it's a diary of my life. And you talk, you talk in the book also about that, um, about sticking with the record. So you know, buying buying an album in your youth, and maybe you don't, it doesn't land with you the first time you listen to it, but you keep it and you come back to it, and at some point, it might, may or may not start to make sense to you. Yeah, well, they're, they're the days where you don't have well, those days when you didn't have much money arguably you don't have much money now but th the world is different now because there's music all over the place and you can check music out before you buy it now um but those days you took a punt like for instance i know in the book that's a voivod album i talk about um and i think i just read about it and the review made it sound really excellent so i bought it and then when i listened to it i thought this is not really excellent like i've i've, I've been hoodwinked here somehow but yeah, because you've got no money and it's your paper round money that you've just spent this, you know, you, you just keep hammering at it and eventually it turns into the best thing ever. <laughs> and, and I still love that album, you know, and I would have bought that when I was 14 or 15 or whatever and just listened and listened and listened. Like uh, Jane's Addiction was the same, that Nothing Shocking album. I bought that and I was like, what the hell is this? And again, stuck with it and it just becomes this, thing that's like uh sort of sewn into your heart somehow because you just hammered the hell out of it when you're young so that's a great record yeah well yeah it's a really great record <laughs> yeah um well you mentioned you mentioned your book there and so what, what was the opportunity like to sit down and document your experiences and your journey and your thoughts on what it means to be a musician um, well f first of all i was stunned to be asked to write that like it, it, it wasn't my idea to do it and um and also for the record it's not my idea to have that on the cover of the book i i really didn't want my face to be on the front cover of that thing um 
but I don't know. This is it's basically a series of books, and it's uh, so far there's only four or five, I think. But everyone else is kind of famous, so they're all really happy to have their picture on the front of books because they're famous people and that's what <laughs> they like. Um, but I was like, this is ridiculous having my face on the cover of this book, but they did it anyway. Um, that's an aside. Um, yeah, so I got asked to do it um, because the chap who runs the publishing company had read an article that I'd done for the quietest magazine. And when he emailed, I didn't really take it seriously. Um, it, Cause you get, don't know, you, you can get a lot of emails offering things or whatever. And you think, well, that's not, this isn't, this can't be genuine. Someone can't really want this anyhow. So I did it and I really, really enjoyed it. It took me like a year or whatever to write. Um, and yeah, I totally embraced it. It was an education for me. And the thing is, is I'm not, I'm not a very good writer and punctuation is terrible. The first review that book got really picked apart the punctuation in it. Um, but I knew that the punctuation was appalling because, because, you know, I got like a, you know, you just sort of scrape through your GCSEs, you know, it was the era where they didn't even teach you the difference between there, there and there, you know? Um, so, so, you know, I've only learned all that stuff recently. So like I realized the writing is not, um, uh it's not shakespearean but um as an experience it was brilliant and 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 i i really liked even the point where um he got a uh a proof reading typesetter guy to go through it with me again and then i had to print it all out and then go through it all with a pen and change things it was the whole thing was complete education i absolutely loved it no i've got i've, I've got to disagree with you that it's not that you're not a good writer it's it's a it's fantastically written it really it comes across there's so many kind of heartfelt messages well that come it's, across, just, it? it's just it, it, if if that's the case then that's good i'm glad you think it but it really is just it's it's just emotion on a page rather than um education <laughs> on a page you know like it's just i think it's very I, I, maybe it's just easy to write about something you love so like you know they say that everyone's got one book in them or whatever so if you found the thing that you really loved, be it fishing or whatever, and you're like, oh, yeah, I can totally emotionally write about fishing, then I, th I think emotion just carries carries things really well. As a as a creative person, how did you f uh, how did you find that uh, space that it puts you in when you're sitting down and writing uh, as opposed to um composing music or th thinking about songwriting you know sit down and, and and um writing for a book um did you enjoy that that sort of physical process because i find that hugely rewarding and, and a really good headspace to be in oh i uh, i loved it uh, absolutely I, I it really it took over my um took over 90 percent of my brain the whole time like um so i just i have a job where i don't particularly have to think too hard um I need to avoid dogs, as I mentioned earlier. Before maybe we start recording, <laughs> I did get bitten today at work. Um, there's only a few things I need to do: is to deliver the letters in the right hole, not get bitten, um, and attempt to be polite, and wear shorts at all time. Um, <laughs> um, so I have a lot of time to think. And I thought, and, and currently I think about music and like the label while I'm at work. But then, and for like a year or so. I was insanely focused on the book, always thinking of, I wanted it to be, uh, one, of the, one of the books I really like is um, that, that book, uh, House of Leaves. Um, mm, yeah. Okay. Do you know that book? 
I do. I'm staring at it right now. Oh, yeah. Okay. I'll believe you. (laughs) 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 Um, No, I'm sure you are. Sorry. Um, I I love the way that that's written and the way that there's like two or three stories on a page that roll through it at the same time. And that's kind of what I wanted. So I wanted the book to jump backwards and forwards, but somehow have a linear thing going through it as well. It was like a three or four prong linear thing. And it was the diary of a new album. It was um, tour diaries. It was discussion of music in general, whatever, and the songs and everything else. But I wanted it to run in like a linear way like that book does. Um, So that was always in my mind, thinking of ways of having that roll through it. So when I was at work, that's all I thought about. I must have misdelivered the hell out of that year. (laughs) (laughs) You've, um, yeah. And what was the, you managed to sort of filter in lots of voices, other people's voices, whether people you've played music with people in the band currently or people from the labels, what was the feedback that came back from, um, from those people when they came to the book? Well, I think they, appreciated being asked to have their uh, thoughts in there i kind of wanted them in there it's you know it's a it's a team thing in it right you, you know on your own and i certainly don't want um i certainly didn't want to take large chunks of credit for crap that i wasn't involved in like you know like songs of you know there's like five or six or seven people in a band there's no even if you come in with a whole song it doesn't end up being your song at the end you know, everyone's, even if you go to the drummer, can you go boom, ching, boom, ching, bass player, can you just play A and D all the way through? By the time they've done their bit, it's their bit. And I think it's the same with like all music being from labels to putting gigs on. It's like a, you know, it's an underground team sport. And so I, I thought it was really important to have everyone having their say and me not putting words in their mouth, you know, so I, I yeah. I think they appreciated it. No one said no. It, it it works really nicely having those other voices in there, doesn't it? I think so. I, you know, I hope so. That's, you know, it's, it's, their opinions are as important, aren't they? So you've, you've um, threaded some fantastic tour diaries through the book as well. Can you tell us a bit more about the very aptly named working men tours or working man tours? Sorry. <laughs> yeah, well, the, the, uh, half of those tour diaries were... Um, they were online when we first started the band. So 2003, we thought it'd be funny to write a review of our own review of a gig and then just put it on like heyclossus.com or whatever the hell the website was at the time. And um, we did it for the first sort of 120 gigs, um, maybe a bit more. And um, sometimes we were a bit sort of snarky about things or, you know, we would take the piss out of people or whatever. And, because we assumed that no one was reading like we we were basically doing it for ourselves and then it turned out that people were reading it a bit like not in great numbers but enough to say you can't come to derby because you said my band was crap um (laughs) Um, so we stopped doing it um but um so and then that website died so but I, i learned of a um i think it's called the wayback time machine which is a website where you can go and find dead websites so you can type in old like old historical websites that don't exist anymore and it can go back to a point in time and find it so i lifted half of those from that um it's kind of genius (laughs) Um, yeah wow um and um put them in 
I even like, um, what is it? There's a moment where uh, Tim, the drummer at the time, he really slags off the band Hot Chip. You know the band Hot Chip? <laughs> yeah. Kind of popular now, but they weren't popular then. Um, uh, we played with them somewhere and he said they were like a crap erasure or whatever. And he wrote this in the thing. And I, I sort of went to him. I said, are you sure you want me to put this in the book? Like I can take it out, whatever, because you're now like, he's now running a very big record label in the in um in the world and there's no no put it in it's cool so yeah we put that in <laughs> um yeah and there's a few other bits that i had to um run past people before printing um uh, but uh, virtually everyone was happy to have stuff go in i think no one said they weren't and the but the working man tours aspect, Joe. So how that um that was how the question, like... wasn't it? That was the question. Yeah, yeah. It? yeah sorry, I, I missed that. I I avoided the question. Um... No, it was good. It was good. <laughs> <laughs> so the question exactly. What is the question here? Just tell us a bit more about what the you know the nature of the working man's tours. How your life, right. uh, your life, your lives fit and work around that. Um, yeah, it's just it, it's just juggling things, isn't it? And you, you've got to like, you have to just put everything in place. You need, so there's five or six people who in, there's six people in the band at the minute, but in through history, there's been four or five or six or up to eight people in this band. And like, like with everything you do, there's numerous pieces of the jigsaw that need to be put into the place before you can go on tour. And that's from work to family, to looking after your pet, to everything, you know, it's pretty, and that's kind of the nature of it where you, you're just, juggling work and music I, I, and that's probably the case for i would have thought 99 of the bands in this world there aren't many left that are full-time musicians you talked about we talked about earlier about this um about building networks and you talk in the book about um going back and playing shows you maybe you go to start and play a show in paris and you might play to sort of 10 people and then you've been back and each time you go back you build a little bit more on that yeah, I think it was just what I was saying earlier about sort of getting friendships in areas and kind of sticking with it and building the thing with the same people. And if I think there's something kind of lovely about working with the same people and 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 making it work together. And, you know, in each time it just gets better and better because it's very easy. And I don't mean it in our case. I mean, like if you're... I can think of examples, but I don't want to name them. But if you're a band on a little label and then you go to a bigger label and then a bigger label and through that time, you also change all the connections in each town. So like you're on a little label and you work with Jimmy or whatever from Scarborough, but then you move up a lay up a thing and then you work with a different person in Scarborough because now you're moved up to a bigger thing. Like imagine how good if you, it would be is if you stuck with Jimmy all the way through and built his world as well with you. And so I'm not, like I say, I'm not saying that we're that big or do that, but I, I like the idea of sticking with the same people and like, like, yeah, making it work together, building it together. I think there's something lovely about that. So for us, we use, um, we just got a friend in, a couple of friends in France. It's like Victor and Antoine. We played six or seven times. I'm talking Paris here, sorry. Um, seeing as that's the example you gave, but we, so we've played Paris six or seven times now. And they've always put it on and it has gone from almost no one coming to now like a couple of hundred people coming and, and you've just done it with the same people and and you just greet each other like the best of friends when you turn up 
And like Victor makes the nicest flans. You can ask anyone in the band. His flans. Like, uh, yeah. And, you know, and they're lovely people. And, and you just, and so you have these connections throughout, depending on how big you want to take it, but throughout, like for us, sort of a lot of Europe. And, and, and I would encourage any band to do that rather than try and constantly jump up and move up a thing. Because if you keep moving up like that, you're not building any form of foundation. And I think the failure can come very quickly. Maybe it's because we're just not a big band. So maybe that it's, it's, maybe it's easy for us to do that. But I think it's easy for us to do that because that's what we've chosen. Um, and I don't, like I say, I don't want to name bands that I know that do it, who jump up like that. But I, I think the, I'm not sure what the satisfaction is uh, with that, ultimately. Like, I think it's a cheap, I think it's a cheap high, maybe a brief cheap high, but ultimately, I wonder if it's slightly hollow if you know you're getting it through mildly nefarious means. When you when you look at the kind of uh, your career as a musician, what would you say some of the kind of highlights in terms of play and shows have been, Joe? Yeah, career is... Does, does career imply um, job? Uh, I'll take that. Take the career word back. <laughs> I don't mean that. In a, it's just it's a funny word for me. It's a um, okay. Let's call. It, I like it. Career. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, there's been some good ones. I, if 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 I was to pick a big gig, it was probably when we played in. Um, the, uh, uh, I'm going to pronounce it wrong, but it was in Portugal. It was the Millos Festival. Um, um, we played to quite a few people, like a, uh, I don't know, like three or four thousand people at this big open air festival, two in the morning. And it was, we we went on after um, him from Noi, uh, Michael Roffer, and uh, we watched him from the side of the stage. And there's like thousands of people up the bank, and he's on at like midnight, and we know we're on at two in the morning. And we're sort of standing there crapping ourselves, thinking this is a total nightmare. And then he finishes and the place empties. And because um, they all go to another stage to watch um, whoever's playing at the other stage. I've got a feeling it was Peaking Lights, if you know that band. They're playing at the other stage. And like, so we're setting up with this like enormous field in front of us, thinking two in the morning, no one's heard of us, this is a total nightmare. And then everyone came back. And it was it was it was absolutely beautiful. And no one, I'm sure that no one there had heard of us. They were just in the mood for it. It was just Portugal, two a.m., beautiful weather, and, and they were totally up for it. But that's you know that's an example of a big a good big gig. But we've done loads of little ones that I've enjoyed almost as much. I say it all the time, but last year we played at a, um, a peach farmer's place in um, just south of Torino, a Boto's farm. He's a, a yeah, a fellow is a peach farmer. He puts gigs on on Monday nights in his barn for touring band because getting gigs on a Monday night is quite hard. But um, he did, uh, before us, he'd put on the fella from Anida, um, and he put on KK Null, like the noise guy. Um, so, like, he, you know, he, he, he's he got good taste and puts on these people, but they only play to, like, 20 or 30 villagers that he invites around. And he feeds oh, them, wow. And you just play in his barn. And because we drove from uh what's it called geneva to there and his farm is completely in the middle of nowhere like off the sat nav thing you're sort of you can't believe it and then you just see this 
like Italian peach farmer waving at you with like dungarees on and essentially <laughs> a straw in his mouth. It was one of them. You're like, oh my God, what the hell's... And he's so friendly, enormous food. He just phones a few friends up and there's like 20 or 30 people there. And that's just as good, you know, <laughs> like in, in terms of like your memories and whatever else you get from something, that's just as good as the big thing for me. I, I really want to go there. I really yeah. want to go there. Oh, goes far. Yeah. <laughs> did you know what it was going to be like before? Did you have an idea what it would be like before you embarked on that journey to go no, and play that gig? No, uh, no. But I would say that the journey from Geneva, certainly to Torino, is one of the most beautiful drives on the planet because you go through the Alps. You can you like we paid like sixty odd euros, whatever, to drive underneath one of the big Alps, whatever that's called. Um, and it's the it's the most beautiful journey so like the whole journey was beautiful we played geneva the night before which was marvelous the journey was beautiful and we get to this fella's farm and no we had no idea but we were grateful because it was a bed and that's the thing when you do a tour it was only like 11 dates but you don't want a night off because a night off costs you money so you you'll play to you'll play anywhere pretty much for a bed it saves you the money and this was more than that because it was boto and his farm and it was brilliant and if you buy the um when the album comes out in the gatefold there's a picture in there and that was taken around the corner from his farm and it's us just on the day after so you'll see that you'll see the joy in our eyes <laughs> when it comes to actually playing live and being on a stage um with people that you've made music with um how significant is that to you still these days oh yeah i still love it i still love it i think um we have it uh, we have it set up in this band where uh you've got like uh the the low end instruments are on the left so it's me on bass and uh bob who plays like low guitar and on the other side you've got like the higher guitars like so it's uh chris and will stand on the other side and they play like the higher notes so they can hear each other quite well, and Bob and I can hear each other quite well. Okay, this might sound soppy or whatever, but I just think, because I've known Bob for so long, and like we went to nursery school together, and to still be, and like sometimes I just look, and it's just like the two of us still doing this. Like if we were at Anvil, do you know what I mean? <laughs> like, but like, yeah, I think it's beautiful. Like to create something and do it. I don't know. It's absolutely beautiful. Of course it is. Yes, it is. Yeah, it is. Well, just just um, thinking about the the creation of the music, um, moving away from the live performance, having made so written so much music and released so much music, how do you approach songwriting these days? Um, well, th this band is quite different, and um, really, you should speak to Chris, the guitarist, because he's he's um, he's fairly fairly new to it. He's been in it for about two years, so. Um, this recent album he recorded with us from from the start um as did will and i think that they both um i think they were intrigued by the way this band works um because we don't go into the studio with fully formed ideas um they're really like basic ideas that we work very quickly with uh, like we'll, we'll have we'll come in with like vague like okay yeah there's this riff or whatever but i don't know it, it comes together very organically in in a studio and we're happy for it to be that way rather than would in a way we'd rather spend more time post-production than pre like you can spend a year or two writing an album 
and then think you've got it and then you go in and record it and I think you can lose a lot of feeling from having a song totally nailed and well rehearsed you don't quite catch it at its best because its best was probably 20 plays ago when you almost had it and that's what we aim for the moment when you almost have the song and you try and capture that one because that one is the one that's the most alive um, which is kind of so that's how we work you've been working in that way for a long time joe i mean was there was there ever a point where there was nerves attached to that because it sounds like you don't have any nerves attached to it these days uh, no no but well the first few albums weren't like that first few albums we 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 did um especially the first first one we like we'd played gigs and stuff and had it nailed but just over time it's changed and especially because of geographical reasons where we just don't live near each other anymore like me living down here, uh, Chris lives in Nottingham, Bob, Reese, Paul lives southeast. Will lives in Sheffield now. Like we're not rehearsing every week, and, and I sometimes like I, I think that that's helped with longevity because I think rehearsing regularly uh, can um, somehow kill enthusiasm for a band. Like to have to rehearse every week, it, it, I, I, I get it at the beginning, but at this point. Yeah, we we can't be rehearsing every week. It would it would it would yeah, it'd kill us. I think. So we we what we do is we'll have an eight hour rehearsal, like every few months or whatever, and then but then we'll book like a long weekend, Friday, Saturday, Sunday through like solid recording, and just pretty much stay up the whole time recording. And it just it's it's exciting, like it's really exciting to do it like that. How did the connection with Mark Lanigan come about then, Joe? He has been buying our records for a long time. Um, I I just like run the mail order, which is what I always tell bands. I say this, I feel like I'm saying this a lot lately, but run your own mail order and then you know who's buying your records. And when you see a name pop up and you think, okay, yeah, that's Bono or whatever, you go, cool, Bono's buying our records. That's awesome. Or Mark Lanigan's buying our records. Christ, that's amazing. And then you just make contact and that was it. And he, he started buying our records a whole bunch of years ago. So I'd had the occasional email chat with him over the years. And then we did this album, um, had this song, and it just sounded right for him. So I was like, do you want to sing on this song? And he was like, totally. And he did it. And he did it for free. And he did it really quickly. Paul Paul wrote the words and sort of phrased it for him a bit. Um, So credit to Paul for that, because I think he did a really good job. And then, but um, Mark, yeah, he, he just went into a studio in um, California and he just sent it back like within a day. And it is pretty much what it sounds like, what he sent back. It was amazing. And I was like, holy crap, we've got the dude from like Screaming Trees and Queens of the Stone Age on our record. Even though I sort of know him as a email friend, still part of me is like, oh, yeah, wow, what a moment, that, eh? Yeah, it's that fella from that band. And, and he's a really nice bloke. He's really enthusiastic about new music. He did that um, album with Not Waving um last year not waving the i think he's italian sort of uh techno guy did records on diagonal um and um lanagan went under the name dark mark on that but so he's got his finger on the pulse of new music as well he's not he's not just like someone only like listening to i don't know blue cheer or whatever <laughs> you know he's still he's still, he's still <laughs> new it seems really healthy for that for him i think he's He's a sort of a rare diamond in that regard. Just going back to the book, actually, I did want I did want to ask, given that you had such a positive experience of doing it, are you thinking about writing anything else? Um, oh, 
I don't know. Yes, I think. No, well, yeah, sounds like a yes. (laughs) You think? You think? Like, I have had thoughts about it. I got. Um, I did a. Um, like out of the blue, Wire magazine asked me to write a thing on Fugazi. So that's in this month's like Wire magazine. There's like six thousand words on Fugazi, which um, I was really because I've never done that before, like written for a magazine. But they just got in touch and. The guy said, oh, I remember we talked about Fugazi years ago at a gig. And I was like, really? I totally do not remember. <laughs> do not remember doing that at all. And I was thinking, in my heart, I was thinking, I think he means someone else. I think he's talking about, he spoke about this band with someone else. But I just ran with it. And he was like, do you want to do this? And I was like, yeah, crap. Yeah, let's do it. So, yeah, that, that came out this month. But no, I'd be up for doing more. I'd be, I'm not particularly chasing it. Um because I don't really have any, I don't really know people in that world or I don't know. So if someone said something, then I'd go for it. But I don't know. I don't know if she's even sure what I'd write about. Once you've done music once, can you do it again? Can you just keep writing about the same subject? I don't know. Oh, yeah, I think probably yes. I mean, I could definitely see you writing something for the 33 and a third series. Oh, yeah. I, actually, my um, kids, that's what they get me every birthday and Christmas. They just pick one of those each. So I've got like a shelf of about 40 of them oh, at the minute. So they're really good. They're really good. There's some that really suck, but some of them are really, really excellent. I think, um, yeah, that's really enjoyable. The Slint one is brilliant. Um, if you've not read that one, it's a really good one. So. In, in your book, you say that things aren't necessarily planned out. So if we were to ask you, what are your future plans? Do you know what they are? Uh, no, especially now, no, because like, you know, we, this year we had a bunch of gigs, not many, but we had a few gigs lined up. It, one of them was going over to Brussels and playing with Lanigan. Um, um, and it, it just all fell apart. Um, so no, not really, not gig wise. There's a big email discussion within band people at the minute about just going to record another record, just book studio and just go in and record it because gigs ain't happening even though we do have some booked for march and april but like don't tell the promoters because i'm sure they're not going to listen to this but i'll be stunned if they happen i'll be stunned if they happen in the way that we want them to and so i don't know so yeah i think it would just be work on another record but i'm really keen on doing the label more and there's i'm really keen on like documenting sounds of friends bands because some of them go under the radar uh, well, I've, I've got one. I've got one final question before we tee up the uh, the, the the song at the end. Um, but at the at the start of the book, you mentioned about your your mum not really getting what uh, what it is that you that you do, and uh, um, so subsequently, has she read the book? And 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 does your mum get it now? Yes, she has read the book. I think she does get. It. She 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 always got it. If you said we're going to go and play Paris, she found that really exciting, but she did not understand why you'd live. She didn't understand why you'd go and play Leeds. It's really weird. Like it's a really <laughs> weird one. Like going, I'm going to Paris. She'd be like, "Wow, Paris! I've heard, you know that's brilliant. Like, Paris is exciting, even though you, even though she doesn't realise that you're just going to play on the outskirts of Paris. We've been to Paris so many times and never seen the Eiffel Tower. You know, people think you're going to go and like <laughs> touristy things and do all that sort of stuff, but you never see any of it. I think she has more of an idea, essentially. She came to a talk that uh, when the book came out, I ended up having to do some of those, like, uh, what are they called, where people come and pay and watch you be talked, interviewed, whatever, whatever they're called. She came to one of them. 
I think that impressed her, even though it was in a bit of a gnarly pub in Walthamstow. I think she got it in the end. Well, uh, we 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 have reached the end of our questions pretty much, unless well, we do have a, a an irregular recurring um, segment of the show called Ben's tangential final question, and I don't know if he has one for this. I, I, I feel like I feel like I should have one, mate. Um, well, there is one that I didn't ask, um, so it's not hugely tangential. Well, maybe it's a little bit. Um, there's there's a reference in in the book, Joe, about. Um, how music or music and art has the potential for influence and change. Could you kind of elaborate on that a little bit? That sounds quite deep. I bet I wrote that late, right? Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, I'm not too sure what I meant there. Okay. Say it again. Um, uh, uh, Maybe I could fish it out yeah yeah fish it out because it sounds uh it sounds quite Mate. hefty I've, by the way i never reread the book when i wrote it because i knew i'd spot mistakes i knew there was one in there there's one mistake that really irritates me in there um so because i knew there was one i knew that i find loads more so i've never reread it uh da-da. okay okay blah 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 so it says we aren't youth we we've for a long time not been youth but we are part of the majority the people who aren't running the country we can have a say we can vote we can be educated a lot of politics come out through art and art can influence i would argue when political histories get written that the influence of politics in art gets overlooked personal politics how you act in your everyday life can be seriously swayed by how your favorite band live their life if they talk, if they talk of left or right wing ideals, then the audience will take heed. Um, yeah, well, th- that's it. My, my thing. Really, is that I'm. Um, I think that uh, when it comes to things like politics, you you need to you start it from your own little group. So, like, you live your your band has to be, you know, your your group of friends or your band has to be like almost like its own little movement so the politics within that band be it do it yourself or uh, um, eating meat or whatever that's the like it's a small microcosm of the big world if you can start living your own little life in the way that you want the big world to be then that's the start that's like the nugget that's sort of the acorn that can really improve things um and it's essentially it's all you can do um because like you can vote and whatnot but i think we all know that voting is um tricky at the minute um i I can't see much change happening at the very top um i think that there's one party that i just can't see them being moved even if even if what they do is endlessly wrong so you, you have to build your own little yeah it's just building your own little world amongst your own community that's essentially it i think now, there's something very empowering about that when you take it back to that isn't there uh yes exactly and it's it's how to in in our case it's how to run a band joe thanks so much for doing this uh, it's been br- it's been brilliant to talk with you and um i completely recommend your book and uh and your music but um thank you thank you so much um for doing it and could we just finish off with you introducing your song please yeah uh first of all thanks for having me it's been a joy um the song is direct it's by stanton 
and it was from a seven inch we released in the year 2000 on johnson family records thanks joe thanks joe Songs from a Padded Envelope is presented, produced and edited by Steve Swindon and Ben Clay. Music is by state-sponsored Jukebox. Artwork is by Matt Canning. Songs from a Padded Envelope is a Hidden Hive production. <laughs>